0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: Wing Commander Tim Ireland, commanding officer number no. 77 Squadron. Tim was born in Bega, New South Wales, in 1980. He grew up in the country towns of Kara and Port Macquarie before enlisting in the Royal Australian Air Force in 1998. Graduating with distinction from the Australian Defence Force Academy in 2000. Tim holds a Bachelor of Science degree, Mathematics and Physics, from the University of New South Wales. Graduated from 190 Pilots course in 2000, FA 18A Hornet operational conversion in 2005, became a qualified flying instructor in 2008, and converted to F. F35A Lightning II in 2020. He was awarded category A qualification on the FA-18A in 2017. Has flown more than 50 missions and 350 combat hours over Iraq and Syria and is an F35A mission instructor and is Mission Command qualified. Tim has served at all operational fighter squadrons. He was a flight commander at No. 3 Squadron during 2012-2015 and executive officer at No. 75 Squadron during 2015-2017. Tim deployed to Afghanistan as an air liaison officer on Operation Slipper in 2008. He subsequently deployed twice to the Middle East region throughout 2015-2016 on Operation Okra as executive officer strike element of the air task group. Tim has staff officer experience in Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group and Air Force Headquarters as the Deputy Director Air Combat Transition Office 2018-2019. He was Executive Officer No. 81 Wing before taking command of No. 77 Squadron in December 2020. He has been selected as Staff Officer to Chief of Air Force in 2023. Wing Commander Ireland is married to Sarah, an Air Force legal officer, and they both enjoy caring for their rescue, Greyhound Audrey. He's also keenly interested in travel, keeping fit and music. Wing Commander Tim Ireland, CO number 77 squadron, it is an absolute pleasure to have your company, sir. Thank you, Gareth. I've got to ask the silly and obvious question. Now, you grew up in the country. Where did the RAAF come into your brain? How and why did you decide to join up?
0: Uh, I think most young Australians, there was a familial connection, not directly but my grandfather flew as a navigator in Sunderland's in the World War 2 uh, out of Plymouth so that that always resonated with me and from that I had very positive experiences or positive view of the Royal Australian Air Force we traveled a fair bit when I was young so mum and dad were school teachers uh, but we enjoyed traveling around the world at every opportunity so air travel became part of my life and I, I grew a passion for aviation through that As I went through school, that was in the background. It wasn't an upfront passion. But by the time I ended school and was looking at what I wanted to do, Air Force
1: became my priority. When you were a passenger with your mum and dad flying around the world, did you ever ask the air attendant, could I go up and see the pilot?
0: Yeah, I still remember smoking on uh, on the planes and being struck by lightning in 747s over America. And yeah, you know, air travel was vastly different back then to what it was today. And I'd often get up
1: into the cockpit. Where did you have to travel to actually join up? What was that process?
0: Yeah, so I grew up in Port Macquarie. So Sydney was the major point for recruiting for me. Yeah. So I was flown down a couple of times as part of that process through year 11, year 12.
1: When you actually got in, what what year was that? By the way,
0: that was uh, February nineteen eighty, correction nineteen ninety eight. I still remember that. So flown down to Sydney to the recruiting centre, sworn in, and then bust off to uh, Adfa.
1: What that quick. Yes. Okay. Okay. They obviously were keen to get volunteers. <laughs> the Australian Defence Force Academy was in two thousand. Now I know you uh, you got a distinction in that course, which is pretty commendable. What's necessary to actually achieve that level of competency in that very elite Australian Defence Force Academy?
0: So the academy itself it blends. Uh, university studies with military studies. So much like a university degree, getting a credit distinction, high distinction, average, uh, that's just a reflection of academic performance as an average over the
1: length of the degree. Were you a dedicated student?
0: Yeah, I've always enjoyed learning. I performed well at school and my passion was mathematics and physics, which thanks to the Air Force, I was able to study. Probably wouldn't have otherwise studied that if I I was not joining the Air Force because I probably would have done something more with a pragmatic outcome like engineering or something like that. So I enjoyed doing a pure maths, physics degree, a science degree at the Academy.
1: And so you did get a Bachelor of Science degree. Was there ever in the back of your mind, my parents were teachers, that's something I should go into because there's a real shortage of maths and science teachers
0: yeah mum and dad were always encouraging with me through all of my passions but they never steered me in any particular direction if anywhere i was i was keen to become an engineer that was my backup plan but yeah i was never intending to to go into school teaching
1: what was the process what were the steps leading graduating from uh, the australian defence force academy getting actually into a plane just take us through those steps yeah, that
0: happened pretty rapidly. I didn't have a break. So you know, I recall graduating, which is a you know, significant occasion, family present, et cetera. And then having a brief summer holiday and then running up to Temworth at Basic Flying Training School in, in that January.
1: Is that 190 Pilots course? Is that what the one you're referring to? It was ADF
0: 9 course through basic flying training schools, so they had a different uh, numbering
1: system back then. What was your first plane? What did they teach you on?
0: It was a uh, CT-4. I had no previous flying experience outside of flight screening to join in. Yeah, so the, the CT-4, which is a robust two-seat aeroplane, a nice basic aeroplane with good handling characteristics, that was my first taste. And I remember going solo out of Corinda, which was a, a huge joy to me, and I was, yeah, I really took to it.
1: I look for someone listening to you right now who's not nothing to do with the Air Force. A CT-4, what is that? A propeller? is it a jet but what is it
0: it's a piston engine propeller aircraft i think it's 210 horsepower so much like a cessna Uh, it's a low wing plane but much like a cessna or Piper Mm. two seat fully aerobatic though
1: Everyone who joins the Air Force that I've spoken to, uh, their career path, I can't quite get my head around who sets their career path. Is it the individual like you choosing to be a a fighter pilot or an engineer or crew or whatever? How is that decided? How did you end up in a plane?
0: I think it's slightly different now, but back then I was recruited as a pilot into the academy. So I went through uh, the aptitude testing, the coordination testing and back then flight screening, which was two weeks of flying experience where they test your ability to learn in the air environment. And out of that, uh, after sitting through a board process, I was selected as a pilot. So now it's slightly different where they've stood up the Air Academy down at and they do that grading and testing once you are in the forces.
1: Well, you seem to have progressed pretty quickly because uh, after the course in 2002, uh, 2005, you're in the Hornet conversion. Then you go 2008 as a flying instructor, then 2020 converted to F-35. So your process was pretty rapid. You must have an innate ability to fly a plane or fly anything.
0: Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I guess, obviously, as I said, I didn't have any flying experience before I joined. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly what was motivating me. I didn't know what I was getting into. And even I remember on pilot's course trying to work out what I wanted, you know, where I wanted to go, what aircraft I'd like to fly next if I did graduate. And I found that a hard decision to make because, again, I had no personal experience of what it was like to be in a fighter squadron or what it was like to be in a transport squadron. You're sort of just guided by those around you, you're guided by the passion that you clearly have for it. In my sense, I just kept signing up for what I thought was the most challenging and accepting if I didn't make it, I'd land somewhere else and that would be okay.
1: Land somewhere else is a good pun. Uh, What do you think, I mean, you're now in charge, uh, the CEO of 77 Squadron, you've got a whole group of pilots under you. What do you Mm think the ingredients are to make for a successful, highly skilled fighter pilot?
0: Well, so there are many shapes and forms of what successful fighter pilots look like. There's no one mould. The common traits where I'm going there, I guess, is, you know, there's some very analytical minds. There's some very artistic go with the flow kind of minds, and it's hard to pinpoint which one is better. But I think a combination of both is is probably the answer. Personally, what traits are important, it's that drive it's the passion. So you need to have a bit of a fire in your belly because it, it is a hard road to follow to mm. graduate and ultimately make it and not just make it, but then also to keep learning and become the best fighter pilot that it can mm. be. So that motivation, that drive, that determination is an important ingredient. Also an ability to deal with stress is important because mm. you are put into stressful positions. And often the best way to handle that is is a level of camaraderie and, and mateship that goes along with getting through those times. So if you're a bit of a loner, that doesn't work usually. That person will come unstuck.
1: It's a silly analogy. I, I love driving cars uh, and I have driven around the Bathurst 1000 track just as a you know an ordinary citizen and then when I watch Bathurst I just am in awe of the skill needed to navigate those cars around that particular track having driven it myself I mean I couldn't Mm. do it therefore I don't have that almost innate ability to achieve that success is there some quality that is almost you were born to fly in what is a makes a good fighter pilot
0: I don't think so I think it's a learned skill it's not natural to hop in a Plane and fly it. All fighter pilots are well-practiced at that so yeah. that it does become innate. I mean, that is the ultimate outcome. Every fighter pilot is not thinking about flying when they're flying. It's so ingrained in them through practice and repetition. It's a uh, subconscious effort to fly the aircraft, which then enables them to think about what's going on outside the
1: cockpit. I get the impression from the people I've spoken to and other people around the world of interviews I've conducted that the Australian uh, RAAF pilot is highly skilled. Is that a comment and tribute and congratulations to the degree of training that the Royal Australian Australian Air Force puts its personnel through.
0: Yeah, I agree with that position. I've heard that the whole time I've been in the Air Force, I've heard that being reflected. I've flown uh, internationally and in uh, multinational exercise and in combat overseas. I, I do feel the actual facts are that we do spend more time in training mm. compared to other Air Forces. So our pilots do graduate with more hours at the basic level. And I think that reflects the outcome at the end. How I characterise this is that our average pilot, our average level of performance is above that Mm. of other air forces. Mm. Um, Not to say that the best pilot is in our air force in the world, because you're always going to have extremes on the bell curve.
1: Let's just look at before, I I do want to talk about those missions of yours overseas with Operation Slipper and Operation Ocra. But before we get to that, what were the steps leading to your involvement with the Hornet and the conversion course in 2005?
0: I followed the bouncing ball of the training scheme, graduated PC9 at 2FDS and then into Hawk training on the um, 379 squadron and the 76 squadron at Williamtown. Then I had actually had about 12 months waiting for a Hornet conversion. So I was flying the Hornet, the Hawk during that period and then was put on a course, went back to Williamtown at 2ICU and, and completed that conversion. It was, uh, and it, that's a challenging course, operational conversion.
1: In what way? There's a
0: required learning curve to stay on. So it's deliberately a six-month course. So essentially, you've got to get to the graduation standard in that time. We can't have too many extra flights if you are struggling. And the reason for that is that once you do graduate and go to the squadron, it's not static that the aircraft gets upgraded, new weapons, new tactics are required. So there's a learning curve in the squadron, which is what the operational conversion is designed to ensure that you can keep
1: abreast with. What was your first flight? In the F-18... The Super Hornet like?
0: Yeah, the classic Hornet. Yeah, it was fantastic. I, was, I remember my first flight. I also remember my first solo. What struck me was, you know, you had to climb up a ladder to get in the cockpit. So it's a long way off the ground. And also the cockpit itself is projected quite a long way forward of the rest of the aircraft. So you, you've you actually got to turn your head a long way to, to see the wings. And with the bubble cockpit, you certainly feel like you're out in front of the aircraft. And once you're busy and flying, you don't really see the aircraft structure yourself. So, you, again, there's nothing distracting you from sure. the
1: task at hand. Why would you need to turn around and look at the wings anyway? Just out of interest. <laughs> well, you got to check that there's no way <laughs> yeah, exactly They're still there. Well. <laughs> Do I still have
0: wings? Yeah. yeah. Because of the flight control system in the Hornet, I actually enjoyed looking back and seeing what the wing was doing, especially when you're manoeuvring. It's quite amazing and sometimes a little bit unerring to see it absolutely shaking and shuddering and digging in.
1: <laughs> when you make a climb at top speed, obviously there's a significant G-force on the body. Would I be right in assuming that
0: yeah so the g-force it's like the centrifugal force. so anytime you're turning in a, a corner that could be a, a lateral turn or a you know a turn around on the horizon or it could be a loop in the vertical if you're turning you're being pressed down into your seat like on a, the bottom of a roller coaster ride
1: what are the effects of g on the pilot
0: yeah they can be debilitating so we spend a lot of time training to deal with g-force so when when it's positive G and you're being pushed down into the, the seat pan, what is actually occurring is bloods draining from your brain and your heart. It comes to a point where your heart pressure can't keep uh, that blood flow to your brain, and if you if you obviously if you uh, maintain that state, then you'll black out, fall unconscious. Usually, you won't necessarily die. Because as soon as you do that, you relax your muscles and you'll let go of the controls.
1: Yeah, right. And
0: the G will stop. So it's a temporary thing, but it can lead to aircraft crashing just due to the, the speed at which we fly and yeah. the nature of our flying. So it is it is a real threat.
1: Is there a, a maximum Or is everyone different? The amount of G you can sustain before you do blackout.
0: Yeah, everyone has a natural tolerance to it. And it's something that you can train to as well. And then we apply techniques. We also wear garments that help keep that blood from pooling below the heart and we use muscular and breathing techniques to sustain the blood pressure and keep blood to the brain. But every human has a natural tolerance, and and we're all different. Usually, a good tolerance is is someone that's not like me. So someone short with a short neck, uh, whereas I'm quite tall and skinny and relatively long neck, so I'm
1: not well designed for G, naturally. I I was actually going to ask, uh, how tall are you? Uh, Six foot one. I'm just imagining a cockpit, well, the the F-35, whatever, they're not huge. Do you fit? Is, there, is yeah, there a height yeah, by, by which you can't fit anymore?
0: Yeah, there are. There's, there's pilots that are six foot four, so I'm not on the limit oh,
1: okay, that. Okay, um, okay.
0: But the cockpits are quite generous, but they certainly are designed for a range of, of weights and heights.
1: You are now based at RAAF Base Williamtown, which was created mm-hmm. on the 15th of February back in 1941, and you're the CEO mm-hmm. of a pretty significant squad. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense, a feeling of the sense of history while you're there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the base itself has changed so much. But we've recently gone through the centenary of Air Force itself, which is a great time for us all to reflect on what's been achieved. Before that, I remember when I was flying the Horn, I flew it down to Point Cook for an air show to celebrate the centenary of flight. And again, those moments always make you pause and reflect. And this year, 77 Squadron turned 80 on the 16th of March, which again is another important milestone. I guess my takeaway from all of that is not how old we are, but actually how youthful we are. 80 years is, is a lifetime. It's not multiple lifetimes. You know, the average age in the squadron, probably in the late 20s to early 30s. So 80 years isn't that long, which when you look at it that way, it reminds you that World War II wasn't long ago. The Korea War, where 77 operated so well, wasn't long ago. And also just the leaps and bounds that the Air Force has made and 77 Squadron, mm. looking back from flying Kitty Hawk in 1942 in defence of Darwin, so today flying F-35 in the strategic environment that we're in.
1: The other great sense of history that you should no doubt feel part of, you are part of the second oldest air force in the world, and that does not include the United States of America, so that is also That's pretty right. significant. Talking about the, the history and, and jumping and Not far from Korea, Operation Slipper. What was your role with the ADF in Afghanistan?
0: Yeah, so my role there, it was not a flying role, it was a ground role but I was providing a liaison effect to our special forces operations in Afghanistan, essentially help support their uh, operational planning and ensure that the air support that they required was requested and organised, whether that be for electronic warfare support through to reconnaissance Mm. and intelligence and surveillance through to offensive air support.
1: Your relationship, what was your relationship like with the other defence operators from around the world, like in particular the United States?
0: It was very positive. Kandahar itself was truly multinational. It was a NATO effort. So you had you know elements of defense forces from all over the world, including Southeast Asia, Africa, and all of Europe. So there was definitely a multinational feel. The US bringing the capability that it has was clearly playing the lead role in how we Mm. organised ourselves and executed the theatre plan. But yeah, it was certainly a team effort and you got a sense of that uh, just walking around Kent Air Base.
1: Did you also get a sense that, I mean, we've made the point already that uh, the skill of the RAAF is uh, recognised. Did you get a sense that other people were aware of that skill component? Did Did they look to Australia as a, well, you're pretty good at what you do?
0: Absolutely. The Air Force at that time, we were providing airlift support into some pretty backwater areas in Afghanistan that had definite risks in operating to and from. That was well respected by the rest of our defense force and also the uh, multinational partners that we Mm. were helping to get to those locations and get equipment to and from those locations. Whilst I was there, we had our surveillance teams Uh, doing uh, reporting and control from Canberra Airfield. Mm. So I'd often go over to see their work and how they were going, and they were doing a fantastic job and and well-respected by all all the operators in the theatre as they helped organise and deconflict the air operations.
1: When a person works with people from other nations uh, in a particular discipline like flying, I would imagine that you glean ideas from the people you work with. Did you bring back to Australia any insights that assisted you in your development?
0: Yeah, there were, I do recall catching up with and and getting briefs from some of the RAF operators that were doing close air support out of Kandahar. So that was um, more aligned with my background Mm -hmm. being a fighter pilot at that point. So it was definitely beneficial for me who didn't have any combat experience in the air to rub shoulders with those that were dealing with those pressures day to day and Mm -hmm. get an understanding of the procedures that they were using and the stresses that they're under airborne so that I could take that home.
1: That was a ground role you had in Operation Slipper, but it's quite different in Operation Okra. You were with the ADF and you were fighting against Daesh in both Iraq and also Syria. That was an air role, was it not?
0: Absolutely. The decision to send our forces was made quite rapidly and Super Hornet, so 82 wing and one squadron deployed again quite rapidly and started flying in theatre in record time. They flew for four or so months and and as part of the backup replacement, uh, the Classic Hornet was the natural choice to send over to keep the operation going and allow one squadron to reconstitute. So I went over with 75 squadron Mm -hmm. at that point uh, as an incoming uh, executive officer and ended up flying or doing two deployments over um, 18 or so months into Okra, wow. uh, which was an amazing experience.
1: You actually had 50 missions, and I believe you flew something like 350 combat hours. I mean, that's pretty significant, is it not?
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not going to set records, but I know it gives you a taste. Like They they were long missions, which is probably the hallmark memory of that time, but we were were a long way from theatre. Our average mission time was in the order of eight hours, which created... A lot of challenges in just physical and mental preparation before, during and after the mission to ensure that you were up to your best in the air. But the fascinating time had a sense of contributing in that war, had a sense of supporting the Iraqi people. Uh, which is why we were there, and felt like it was a, su- a successful com- campaign with the way it was operated.
1: Can you just take us through a mission, what what you had to do before it, how you got in the plane, what you then did, what what your task was, what your role in the air was, and then when you came back, how you went, you would unwind?
0: We'd plan to about a 14-hour day, which is longer than we'd normally operate at home, just for crew rest cycle. But that meant your preparation started the night before, so you need to get a good sleep. Usually, the day before you wouldn't be flying to maintain that tempo and to make sure you're alert. And- cockpit so you'd have the day off where you just catch up and you'd touch base to see what's going on in Iraq and Syria but then you'd make sure you're eating well get a good rest your mission time was set it could start at any time but I essentially get up for some breakfast and then I'd pack a lunch so at the mess I'd make sure I've got some snacks for the mission itself because it's important to eat every hour or two so I'd pack some treats some boiled eggs and other, you know, sticks of carrot and some healthy options and then a bit of morale, maybe a bag of chips. And then I'd go <laughs> go to mission brief. So our mission was prepared by another pilot again because we didn't uh, we had to be in crew rest for that. So we get the detail of the mission, understand where we're locating, who we're talking to, what the ground maneuver is. Uh, what the enemy are doing. And then we'd quickly brief and then we would be uh, out to the aircraft to prepare and, and go flying. And depending on the season, like in the summer, it would be over 50 degrees on the tarmac. In those occasions, we'd have another pilot walk around the aircraft and prepare it for us. And we'd stay in air conditioning in the van and then we'd be drinking a lot of water to stay hydrated. Essentially, we'd just get up into the cockpit as quickly as possible and start the aircraft to get cooling going. But from there, with all systems go, we'd take off usually with a tanker or we'd meet one airborne and we'd head on the long journey up uh, into theatre, which which took a few hours. Mm. Uh, so main aim of that was just to be relaxed as you're flying into theatre, make sure you're comfortable and relaxed.
1: What are you thinking while you're heading towards that destination?
0: Not much, not not flying, not what could happen ahead. It was always a reactive uh, mission. Mm-hmm. Really just taking your mind off things like a uh- I imagine an opening batsman for Australia would have between balls. So maybe a bit of chat on the radio or absolute silence, whatever was most comfortable. You'd have to refuel every hour during the mission. So that was always something to prepare for and concentrate on. But outside of that, I would just let my mind wander. And then once you'd fence in in theatre, it was making sure that you were alert and concentrated at the right times. Mm -hmm. So again, over an eight-hour mission, that was the challenge.
1: The tanker, did you ever consider on the ground or in the air that the tanker is a target?
0: Yep, absolutely. So, in, I mean, in planning, they're positioned in areas that are low risk. So, we'd always have to leave where we're operating, which is uh, usually an area of higher risk over a population, and go find the tanker where it's in a lower risk environment.
1: Sure. Given the vastness of kilometres across the planet, the tanker must occupy a pretty important role in the day to day activities of the Royal Australian Air Force and any Air Force.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a critical enabler to project the fighter capability and to sustain it airborne. So, you know, without the tanker in that theatre, we probably couldn't fly for much. With the, the loadout that we we're carrying, we'd be lucky to fly two hours. Yeah. So to get eight to get eight hours plus, the tanker is the only way mm. to do that.
1: To what extent would you guess that the Navy, any Navy in the world that has aircraft carriers, has an advantage over the Air Force in the sense that it can actually take their planes closer to any hot zone than the Air Force can?
0: Yeah, that's a true advantage. And whilst we're operating in Okra, uh, there'd always be a tanker up the Gulf closer to the fight. That was a clear advantage. You know, they do have an air-to-air fueling capability as well, limited but available to them. Sure. But in in that operating environment where the carrier was not at risk itself, they could get quite close to the fire. Mm.
1: It's another question that I'll come to a little bit later on, but I'm assuming, therefore, because you're in Iraq and Syria on the operational area, uh, the planes have been taken from Australia and delivered there, so you don't have to mm. necessarily fly there. So you are lim- if the plane has a limited distance it can travel, uh, you've negated that and make the Air Force an effective Means of delivering impact uh, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is correct. We had to rotate the aircraft through, so there was lots of transits occurring to sustain that operation for the number of years that we did. But yeah, to get to your point, like air-to-air uh, air fueling is is a critical enabler in any sure sure uh, air, any air
1: campaign. Just out of interest, how did the F-18 handle the the weather in that? region
0: amazing like we didn't have any shelter we we're just on the ramp open through the heat dust storms there's heavy fog thunderstorms the hornet the classic hornet was a stalwart in those mm. conditions it was inspiring to see her operate through all of those conditions so well and after a while like the aircraft sort of turned brown from all the dust any leak of fluid or anything just became. Brown. It looked pretty cool.
1: Yep. <laughs> what, what cool is not the right word I would have chosen, Tim. Anyway, <laughs> something that I, I consider important because it seems to be endemic within the RAAF. Just in those two operations you're involved in, how important was mateship and camaraderie across various roles? How how important was that?
0: Critical. If you didn't have that, your effectiveness just breaks down.
1: The camaraderie and the
0: cohesion is something that you've got to work at, to maintain, and, and there's inevitable periods where it will break down in pockets, especially in a stressful environment like that where people are physically tired and mentally tired. Mm. But that just underlined the importance of it to me. When those issues weren't present and when your team's supporting each other, then the mission just flowed.
1: Was there a strong relationship between pilot and ground crew? Exceptionally close.
0: One of the you know, highlights of Ocra was that, relationship, the mutual respect from parts to the maintainer. That could rectify an issue whilst the engine was, whilst the the jet was running to get you airborne and into the fight was inspiring. And likewise, the maintainers got to see us get out of the cockpit completely drained, but with no weapons left on our wing and grew a real affection and Mm. respect for the pilot. So I've never seen it so good as I did in Okra, the mutual respect between maintainer and pilot.
1: In your missions, in your 350 combat hours of flying, did you come across Mm. the enemy?
0: Not airborne, so it was an air permissive environment.
1: Right, okay. Um, the likes of which we may not possibly see
0: for a long time. So we were operating with complete freedom in the air. The enemy was ground-based and they had the weapons and the ability to touch us in the air, but I, I personally didn't feel threatened at any time or, or see that occur. So, yeah, my contact with the enemy was, was watching them manoeuvre on the ground.
1: Mm. Given that we no longer fly them, how did the F-18 avoid SAMs or surface-to-air missiles? As a fourth-gen fighter, it
0: had a radar warning receiver. So for any radar-cued missile, you'll get an indication of that occurring. But otherwise, like an infrared missile, uh, which most man-operated systems are, it's just through thorough lookout. So we'd always operate as a pet, as a minimum. And through diligent lookout and vigilance, particularly when you're operating where you knew your enemy was, that was our main sensor for any threat coming towards us. And then we have techniques and procedures, including dispensing flares and chaff to try and ruin that kill So train.
1: do the flares emit from the rear of the aircraft and the, the missile then hits one of those and is destroyed? Is that the process?
0: Yeah, the flare's really just a, a decoy to dazzle the information infrared seeker in an incoming missile such that it finds it a juicier target. Same, same with chaff for a radar.
1: Just as a jump to the F-35 for a second, there's no co-pilot in an F-35, so you don't have someone helping you as a lookout. Uh, that means you've got to be really on top of it.
0: Yeah, and, uh, classic Hornet was single seat as well. That's where that mutual support, which is what we talk about all the time, but yeah. mutual support means I look out for you and you look out for me. We like to operate not alone so that we can clear each other's uh, six and blow each other's aircraft.
1: Okay. Now I know why you like being able to look around at the wing. <laughs> yeah, Moving right well. along, what is an F-35A mission instructor?
0: It's part of our categorization scheme where we develop skills through basic flying skills on the aircraft through the leadership skills. So we step through leadership of two aircraft to leadership of four aircraft to leading a package. Uh, Mission Instructor Qualified means that you can... Uh, mentor and instruct and assess your four ship lead uh, mm. who is integrating into a package of aircraft.
1: If you've uh, just tuned in to this interview, it's fascinating. gentleman I'm talking to, he was flight commander number no. three squadron between 2012 and 2015. He was the executive officer of 75 squadron 2015 to 17. He was the deputy director air combat transition 18 to 19 and now commander number no. 77 squadron. He took over in December 2020. You must look back in your young career and think, that's pretty good. I really enjoy this job in the Air Force.
0: Yeah, I had a thoroughly enjoyable career. I've not had a bad job, which is why I continue to be impressed by Air Force and look forward to an ongoing future career in Mm. it. But, yeah, those, you know, those jobs are just stepping stone jobs uh, to, the, to the job that I'm in. And ultimately, we, we're trying to grow, you know, commanding officers through those stepping stone jobs. Mm.
1: Well, you are now in charge of uh, on a squadron of F-35s. Um, what is the task of number of having three squadrons at Williamtown?
0: So 81 wing is the wing that we all operate F-35 under. There's three squadrons at Williamtown and one in uh, RAF Base Tyndall in Northern Territory. The three at Williamtown, one is a training unit. So that's where we train maintainers and pilots to conduct operations on F-35. That's an important role to keep our system growing. The other two squadrons, which is my squadron, 77 squadron and three squadron, we're operational frontline F-35 squadrons. So we rotate through being on the hook to respond to any requests from government that may come in and otherwise ensure that we're prepared to respond to whatever mission and role that uh, we're asked
1: to do. I've read a lot about the F-35 and there's been some people who've criticised the purchase because of the cost and uh, it, it's not necessarily going to be capable in dogfight and we've got the F-35 convert con- compared to the what was the F-16. Why do we have the F-35? What makes it such an admirable asset?
0: You've got to remember the context that it was purchased and that we're operating in to understand why. But, you know, the operating environment, the military capability that exists around the world today started to outpace what the Classic Hornet was designed for and and could keep up with. So as a replacement, because these these systems don't operate forever, as a replacement for Classic Hornet, we needed something that could keep up and ideally would outpace competing capability in the world that's Mm -hmm. available with also a view that it could upgrade and keep in front of potential adversary systems that are no doubt trying to take on the F-35. So F-35 was chosen really uh, because there wasn't really any other choice it would have been silly in an air force like ours to select a comparable system to the classic hornet we needed something uh, far more advanced than that to give us a competing edge and to try to keep that competing edge available to us for as long as possible mm. so there was no other option f35 was the only aircraft available to us with those fifth gen capabilities of that next generation on from the
1: classic hornet what actually is a fifth generation aircraft what what does that mean
0: fifth generation means the aircraft has is low observable so it has stealth characteristics for evading radar built into it not added to it like you might try to do to something like a classic hornet mm-hmm. and add those things after market. f35 is designed ground up to be stealthy uh, that means it can be far more effective at uh, achieving that end. so it's seeing low observ- observable it's having advanced sensors so it's got far superior radar, it's got new technology in infrared sensors that give a, a view around the aircraft in 360 degrees. It's got infrared targeting systems built into the aircraft, not added on or carried on the wing. And it's got electronic warfare systems baked into the aircraft as well, which again add essentially a geolocating capability for systems to give more awareness of where ground-based, air-based systems are and where threats might be coming from. Those advanced sensors make it 5th Gen. Thirdly, Bringing all those systems together through what is called fusion, such that the pilot doesn't have to bring up a radar screen, marry that SA with an infrared sensor screen, and then work out on a map where all these bits of information are. Those advanced sensors put through a fusion engine and deliver to the pilot one picture that federates all of that information. That makes it fifth gen. And then lastly, it's having an advanced data link system to share that information freely amongst the other aircraft, which in in essence, makes the formation a large array by just one aircraft.
1: Let me see then if I've got that, if I, if I can summarise what you've just said. The F-35A has the following components. It is stealth, most important. It can conduct electronic warfare. It has sensors. It mm-hmm. has processing power. And it's combined all of those to collaborate with other actors in the region of interest. Would I have summarised that reasonably closely?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and that's what makes it 5th gen and really still the only aircraft available that can do that. Is it any good in a dogfight? It's still a good fighter jet. So (laughs) it's (laughs) you're talking to a Classic Hornet guy that was designed to do that. The F-35, whilst it was on the design wish list, that wasn't the number one. So it doesn't have thrust vectoring, it doesn't have the perfect visibility of a Classic Hornet, but it's still very capable what the fifth generation capabilities allow you to do is hopefully arrive unseen to emerge and therefore have an advantage from the outset and or create favorable conditions for those merges mm. Such that you you uh, always have an advantage.
1: So would I be right in assuming then that an F thirty five A can detect way before a dogfight is necessary other enemy in the in the distance and it can take the appropriate action before it even gets to the point where it needs to be in a dogfight?
0: That's right. It allows the pilot to select the conditions in which they want to merge and therefore create conditions to merge by shooting on the timeline they want to do to create a better favorable outcome uh, and lower the risk.
1: I'll take the devil's advocate position the F-35A is a very expensive item and Australia is committed to purchase 72 of them, I'm assuming. Would the money have not been better spent by, for argument's sake, buying or building an aircraft carrier that can take the appropriate aircraft to a, a hot zone, given that the range of the F-35A has is X and the distance between us and any foreign person is X plus X plus X? Devil's advocate by the Navy machines rather than Air Force machines. What's your response?
0: Defence of Australia is a maritime and an air problem at its core. So, what you're proposing there isn't silly. The realities are that our, uh, as a Defence Force, are not large. Our Navy hasn't operated aircraft carriers for many years, and creating a carrier and putting our aircraft on it is not a simple task. The threat environment that exists today puts aircraft carriers at risk, that would become quite a nice target for any potential adversary and then goes your entire capability. So I guess the, the mix of capabilities that we have today, we've arrived at by design mm-hmm. and by and by history in the choices made before us. These are difficult questions and hence there's a review on right now on on our posture and, and our capabilities. Sure. So these are questions that aren't answered to the level of fidelity that I think we would like. What our current Air F- offers is credible Defence of Australia. Absolutely. Option. We have an ability to spread our forces adequately. We are a large nation. Uh, we have the capability present to project that into positions where we can defend Australia off our shores. And the Navy also has capabilities uh, at sea and undersea that can hold adversaries at risk and help defend our nation. But uh, who knows, we might be getting aircraft carriers
1: uh, now, oh, I <laughs> hope next n- year. I, I hope know. not. I hope not. <laughs> Submarines <laughs> maybe, but not aircraft carriers. You must have pretty broad shoulders. I mean, you're the CEO of number 77 squadron, F-35A pilots who are the elite of the elite. Uh, what are the stresses and strains on you to to command that group of, of pilots?
0: Well, firstly, I command 90% of my squadron is not pilots. So it's a large team that comes together to even get the pilot to the starting line. 77 squadron is presently about 160 personnel. As I said, only a small portion of that are actual pilots. I've got great staff to help me manage that. So my executive officer runs operations for me, Mm -hmm. managing pilots and pilot support systems. Uh, And I've got a senior engineer officer who manages the maintenance and support and logistics workforce for me. So it's a team effort. Really, I just set the direction, set the tone. And the beauty of a fighter squadron is that they're nearly all 100% motivated to get the job done. Yeah, so yeah of it's, uh, it's not the most difficult job I've ever had.
1: How often do you get up in the air?
0: I like to fly... Once to twice a week is probably the reality of it, but there'll be periods where I fly more than that. We try and fly the average pilot three to four times a week. If we're going away on exercise or a period of uh, more complexity where extra extra supervision is needed, then uh, I'll find myself flying a bit more, Mm. but it has to be balanced.
1: You're married to Sarah. How does she handle an Air Force pilot as a husband?
0: I never speak for her. i be careful not to, but Sarah's also in the Air Force, which helps. So she understands the pressures and, you know, the importance of what we do and is, is therefore is a great support to me and me to her in her career.
1: What is her role in the Air Force? So Sarah's a legal officer, and so she
0: provides support to commanders like myself and also from a personnel perspective, discipline perspective, but mm-hmm. also Sarah, legal officers provide operational law advice as well. So things like law of armed conflict and ensuring that our rules of engagement are meeting international law requirements.
1: Tell me about uh, Audrey. Audrey's your, <laughs> Audrey's your rescue ground. <laughs> How did you come to get get hold of Audrey?
0: Sarah's idea really uh, I think it was a COVID lockdown decision Yeah, I'd never grown up with a pet actually and Sarah had so I was probably the more reluctant one but she's added a lot to our lives I, I didn't quite realise what a dog can do for you but she's a fantastic companion yeah she's a rescue she comes with her own complexities which is great so yeah. she's got great character but at times just needs uh, a little bit of time to herself to yeah. get over yeah. life in
1: general the complexities that come with a dog as they do with a fighter pilot but anyway uh, you are you also have a, a great interest in music. What kind of music, Tim? Done uh, some research. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Talking, no. To,
0: <laughs> my, talking to Sarah. So I, I've i always been equally passionate about flying as I am music. So I think I got that from my parents as well with all the travel in the car. I really got into like Bob Dylan when I was young. Good choice. Yeah. Um, played saxophone through school. Music continues to be an outlet for me. I enjoy both listening to it. I rarely sit in silence. I've usually got some music playing.
1: What do you listen to, Tim?
0: Anything that interests me. So anything from jazz, folk music, through to funk and you know rock and roll. Good. It doesn't really matter the, the genre. If there's a connection that I have to the music or the lyric, I find that the attraction. I do enjoy playing guitar as well and find that's a really good stress relief mm. and way to get away from uh, what's going on outside.
1: You are a well-rounded Australian, team. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I'm just in awe of uh, what you and all of your team, and in fact everyone in the Royal Australian Air Force does. It, it is a remarkable organisation. I'm always struck by the, the notion of team, the word team that seems to exist within everyone who works in the RAAF. And in fact, you're almost like one big family. Does that strike you in some way, shape or form, Tim?
0: Absolutely resonates. It's When people leave uh, the forces, there's certainly a connection that they never lose. You you often still catch up with people that have that have left uh, the Air Force they remain so passionate such a unique uh, lifestyle and such a unique job. It's what sustains you I think in the end is those personal connections mm. and those friendships and also I think they're their lifetime ones as well from yeah. uh, from my experience
1: mm. as a pilot as a person who works in the Air Force, do you ever think or worry about the possibility that UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles may eventually replace the pilot? I
0: don't think it's not going to happen in my lifetime, I don't think. So it doesn't worry me. I think you find that we're not protectionists of the way it is. We're very capability focused. And if that is the answer to give us an edge, then I don't think there'll be any pilot in the Air Force that would resist that. There'll still be a role for what we do, the mindset of what we do and the the skill set of what we do but as I said in my lifetime I think certainly as a fighter pilot and the dynamic nature of uh, an air battle and the complexity of the battle space I think what we'll see is a stepping stone approach and there'll be more air teaming occurring with unmanned air vehicles as a stepping stone before I think uh, the technology is such that we could do without pilot in the environment at all.
1: Well, that's the future, maybe. Uh, But at the moment, uh, as far as the air forces around the world are concerned, we're the second oldest and one of the best, if not in my opinion, the best. But you make me very proud to be an Australian, Tim. Uh, Thank you, Gareth. Remarkable a remarkable career and you are at the cutting edge as are all of your other personnel within number no. 77 squadron of what it is to defend the country you love so it's been an honour and a privilege to talk to you wing commander tim island i know the future has got great prospects for you there's something maybe happening in 2023 which we won't talk about now but when you are in that position i'd love to chat again thank you for your time tim
0: thank you gareth it's been really enjoyable
1: Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice. Which is won in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra.
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families, produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.